You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. This is a new podcast combining discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know... Starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. <laughs> I said that with a straight face. This is distilling theology. <laughs> so, Blake, <laughs> tell no, me no, what is in your glass. <laughs> <laughs> Record scratch. Welcome to another episode of Distilling Theology. I am Justin. And I'm Blake. And today, we are tasting a very special whiskey. This is Highland Park 18-year. That means it is now of legal age to vote. (laughs) So, Highland Park is a Scottish Isles distillery. Now we'll get a little nitty-gritty about Scotch distillation. There's technically six regions. There's three major ones. There's the highlands, the lowlands, and the islands. And then within that, there's subsets of regions. Your islands are broken into just like general Scottish Isles and then Isla. And then within your highlands, you've got your space side, your west highlands, and your lowlands. Just have general lowlands, and you have Campbelltown. So there are multiple delineations. And I mean, there are people who will subdivide even further than that. But the general idea is highland, lowland, island. Highland Park is an island whiskey. It comes from the Isle of Orkney, which is on the northern coast of Scotland. They have a 12-year, a 15-year, an 18-year, I believe a 25 and a 30. I have not tasted those. I have, however, tried the 12 and the 18, and at a special tasting event, I got to try their like $400 bottle of their Fire and Ice edition. That was magnificent. Mm. But it was also at that tasting event that I got to try the 18-year, which is when I decided to save up money to buy it. Now, how much does a bottle of 18-year... Viking Pride run you? I believe this was 115 which for an 18-year-old Scotch whiskey is pretty, pretty reasonable. Pretty good price. Yes. Like usually they're not going to start being available until 150 So 115 is pretty dang good. That said, the regular Highland Park 12 is like 50 bucks. So if you're looking to get into smokier Scotch, this is a great gateway. It's not quite as aggressive and, and meaty and uh, seaweedy as your Isla whiskeys, like Lagavulin and Lafroig, but it's very, very delightful smoke. Now, the 18-year, this is what they say about it, as I totally lose my place. There it is. <laughs> These labels are just, like, so intense. Yes. Okay, so it's 18-year-old Viking pride is an expression, a perfect expression of complex harmony and refinement, rich and mature with a honey sweetness, delicious hints of chocolate and cherries, and subtle top notes of aromatic peat smoke. It's a single malt scotch whiskey that truly stands apart. And then they talk about their craftsmanship and their independent spirit and Viking pride, which are all very exciting. Now, all of this chatter has actually just been me stalling to give us a little bit more time in the glass. As I mentioned, I think two episodes ago, we talked about the story of the men in the bar uh, and how they open up. So what do you get on the nose right off the bat with this one? So right off the nose, it almost smells like a dark, dark cherry type um, almost like you'd you you're smelling like a cherry cola or something like that. It's very sweet, very dark. There's even a little bit of um, you you almost get a little bit of the smoke off the nose, kind of like if you took cherries and you're having them by the fire or something like that. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's a very nice <clears throat> aromatic quality to this. Well, let's try it. Indeed. Cheers. Trying to not break the mic. <laughs> Thank you. 
Mm. It's really good. I said the same thing last night when we tried it. It's very good. It's got a little bit more kick than some of the other scotches, but it comes with good purpose. Mm. Right off the bat, you do get some of the smoke and you get some of the sort of the darker kind of earthy tones. And then as it settles, you almost kind of taste the chocolate, the cherry, kind of like you're having like a nice dessert by the fire. Mm. And it's just, it's very pleasant. This is one of my favorites. This and the Talisker 18-year-old. However, I've had more luck finding this regularly. And this is a little cheaper. Talisker 18 is another one, but it's much more charcoal-y in the mm. smoke. This is a little bit more like that after, sm- like you're downwind yes. of the smoke. Or like, you know, you're across from someone smoking a pipe, which are both very pleasant, soothing smokes. But anyways, so that's what we're sipping. What are you reading these days? Well, for the last couple of weeks, I started when I was on vacation in Vermont. I cracked open the Heidelberg Catechism and started working my way through that just to get some more breadth and depth to my different confessional interests. I want to make sure that uh, despite the fact that I'm a Baptist and I'm never going to change, I want to make sure that I'm never going to (laughs) change. Because in reality, I'm always going to subscribe to scripture first. And if I'm wrong and I err in a certain area, I'm obviously willing to bend my will to the will of scripture. So I'm reading through that and enjoying it thoroughly. How about you? So I actually finished the Heidelberg earlier this summer and I had never read it before. I'd read the Westminster in the 1689 London Baptist. And obviously it's a different animal being that it's not a confession, it's a catechism, but I found it so encouraging. And then on my way out here, actually, I was listening to an audiobook called Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out, which is about evangelism. Uh, It's by a gentleman who is from the SBC. For those of you who don't know, the SBC is the Southern Baptist Convention. Thank you, sorry. It is a conglomerate of churches that fall under a general statement of faith, but it is not a denomination. It is just a group of churches who subscribe to similar theological beliefs. But there is quite a bit of variation under that, and it's uh, getting a little bit more broad of terminology in these later years, unfortunately. Indeed. So the gentleman's name is Alvin L. Reed, and the book is Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. Something we could all learn a little bit about. Absolutely. And for me, you know, again, we've both grown up in the church. We've both shared our faith. I mean, I've been privileged to share in small groups at my college and then even at retreats. I've been asked to do small Bible teachings. Likewise. I've shared at, you know, with coworkers. So it's not that it's totally foreign to me. But at the same time, it's still something that I think culturally as Christians, we have this overwhelming sense of it needs to be this big presentation. I haven't finished the whole book, but I'm two thirds of the way through it. And the big thrust that Reed is making is that, look, we've gotten hung up on this idea of gospel presentation, which just feels an awful lot like public speaking. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to sit you down and tell you everything you're doing wrong (laughs) and why you need to repent right now and believe. And there are times and places for that. But his proposition is, hey, let's look back at what the first century church did. And they were conversational. So he said, we want to move from gospel presentations to gospel conversations and to what we've been talking about with the gospel, like not just saying, all right, you're a sinner, Jesus died for you. But well, look, God created this world and this world is beautiful, but something's gone wrong and we've been wronged and we've wronged other people and there's justice that's going to come. And so you work people through that in a conversational way instead of just sitting them down and like unpacking, like I'm going to convert you. And the other interesting thing that he raises, which kind of gets into what we're talking about today, is this idea that, look, like I am not the one who saves them. God does the saving. God is sovereign. God is 
over all and through all, but he's pleased to use broken vessels of clay to reach others with this message. It's through the foolishness of preaching that people are saved. Mm -hmm. And so what's really encouraging about this book is he's like, look, take the pressure off yourself. Every gospel conversation isn't going to lead to a conversion, but you don't know what you're going to drop with somebody when you're conversing with them, hearing about their life. He had this great expression. He's like, you love Jesus and you love this other person. So why wouldn't you want them to meet? You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't you want them to meet Jesus? And the other side of that is, all right, so you're sharing and you've taken the pressure off now. I'm not necessarily trying to convert. I'm just sharing the good news. But he said people come in two ways. They come by their passion or by their pain. So he said you talk to someone about what they're passionate about, and then that can lead you into a gospel conversation very naturally. Or, you know, you hear them talk about what they're struggling in, their pain, and that can also say then you're vulnerable in your own life. Well, I struggled in this. You know, I was overwhelmed. Well, how'd you get through it? Well, I didn't by myself. Yeah. I would say, you know, like, and, and you're able to work into it. That kind of makes me think about something we talked about earlier today when I was, uh, you know, I listened to several podcasts and I was listening to a podcast on the Stoics and that worldview. And Paul himself ended up quoting Stoic literature to his contemporaries in the book of Acts when he's talking to these people. And it's this idea that he's not just saying, you're a sinner, you need grace, here's the Savior so you can escape hell. It's like he's talking to them on their level with things that they can understand and relate to. You know, I'm sure that a lot of those philosophers were very passionate about their philosophy. So being able to relate to them in that same way, you know, like you were saying, coming through their passion, just being familiar with your culture enough that when you engage with people, it's relevant. I think a lot of times in Christian circles, we get in these little bubbles, especially as kids. You know, we grow up and we don't know how really to interact with the culture, you know, because naturally, you know, I'm a father and I want to protect my son from this culture and this world. But I also have to recognize that that can actually do damage in some ways because, you know, I still want him to be able to interact with the world and understand how it works so that he can properly evangelize without freaking out. Yeah, I'm not totally through the book yet, but so far I've really enjoyed it. It's been like a breath of fresh air. It's not very technical and nor should it be. It's a very straightforward book that was recommended to me by someone in a reformed Facebook group. I saw them post a recommendation of it and I just saw that it was on Audible on sale and I grabbed it and I had to drive out here. So I said, well, let me listen to it on my drive out to see Justin. So awesome. What's next, my friend? We left off talking about creation and talking about how God is the creator and sustainer of all things, but he's also in the process of recreation. And we talk about that hope. I mean, that starts to get into the idea of end times theology or what falls in systematic theology under the heading of eschatology. But that idea of God creating a new heaven and a new earth without sin and death and pain and suffering, where all the things that are wrong in this world are made right. And that applies to our salvation. When mm-hmm. when we're born again, we're not just these sick people that are given a medicine. We're dead and we're born again. We're raised to life. So he actually takes our hearts and he replaces a heart of stone with a new heart of flesh. It's a recreation of our nature, of who we are in Christ. The whole idea of baptism is that we're buried and we come alive mm-hmm. again in Christ, a new creation. He makes all things new. If only um, uh, Jesus had said something about this. Oh, well, you see, we have a couple <laughs> of books open here. Uh, These books are called Bibles, and they have some wonderful insight into such a thing. Well, let's listen to the words of Christ, and then we'll see what later apostolic revelation expanded upon. So, we turn here to John chapter (gasps) 3, beginning of verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born? I want to stop there. Let's just think about the statement that he just made. He obviously knows that a man is not going to go back into his mother's womb 
to right. be born again. So you have to consider the context in which Nicodemus is talking to Jesus. I mean, he must be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's quite a brash statement to make right. to, to one who you just said, we know you're a teacher from God because if you weren't, you couldn't do the things that you do. Yeah. Oh, what? Yeah. What so you going back to your mom's <laughs> womb? Like, come on. Yeah. It's very, um, I think in some ways kind of haughty. Very. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless as one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from nor where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Then Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? And Jesus again answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? By the way, he should understand these things. Nicodemus is a teacher of the Jews. He's a religious leader. And he knows the scriptures. These people know the scriptures inside and out. And Jesus is basically calling him out like, how do you not know this? You know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Truly, so we should pay attention. Precisely. Let's, <laughs> let's listen. Let's listen deeply to Jesus here. Truly, truly, again, he says, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent into the wilderness, so must be the Son of Man lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I mean, that's intense. He's basically saying, I'm giving you earthly knowledge and you you can't even grasp it. How in the world are you going to grasp anything that I tell you that's actually of substance? Mm -hmm. I think also, aside from the fact the interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus here is, if we just focus on strictly what Christ says here, this idea of rebirth, it really wonderfully describes this idea of what happens when a person is saved, when Mm -hmm. they're regenerated. This idea that not only are you just no longer bound to sin, not only are you just free from the bad things that you like, you're literally recreated, you're born again. So if you're not a parent, you haven't seen birth. It is a gruesome scenario and it is intense. And this idea that God is using that same sort of description to describe what it looks like to be born again spiritually, it's just such a a loaded thing to say. Mm. There's so much emotion. There's just so much that goes into the character of a person when they become a parent or something like that. So when somebody becomes born again, I mean, it's really like watching a brand new thing just come to life and it's just it's miraculous Mm. there's no other way to describe it yeah i think that passage is pretty remarkable i think it's interesting too that jesus emphasizes he you're a teacher of the law you should know these things like he's a theologian you know Mm -hmm. like so to those of us that you know we're we're on a podcast called distilling theology we're lay people that are you know enjoying studying theology to quote rc sproul everyone's a theologian because everyone has an opinion about god so in a loose sense everyone's a theologian and there are obviously some who are specific and studied but to all of us i think it's also a you know, it's like, whoa, we got to be humble here to the fact that we may have all earthly knowledge and, and all understanding of the text, and we still could be clueless. It was what John Piper said when he said that the devil has, in one thought, more accurate theology than you have in your entire life. Absolutely. And that's kind of the beauty. As we're talking about this idea of regeneration, of salvation, of how these things interact together, my great comfort is that I'm not saved by my own ability or by <laughs> my own perfect confession or by my own perfect statement of faith or perfect understanding or perfect theology. And I think sometimes people will go to war with, usually on the internet, but it's not just online. They'll go to war with people they disagree with over theological issues. Yeah. And it's like, well, look, like we're in the household of faith here. Yeah, we can, we should wrestle through difficult issues. I'm not advocating for just 
everyone pretending we all get along on everything, but I'm saying we are unified in Christ. And at the end of the day, if we've all been regenerate, we're all now have that new desire to see God. And while we still struggle with sin and we will for our whole lives, this side of eternity, we're all focused on the same hope. And there's another passage in scripture that talks about this idea of, of new birth, of new creation, pretty prominently in the New Testament. And that's in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, particularly in the second chapter. I'll just start at the beginning here. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, so to everyone who says, well, we're just naturally good, or people are just born good, A, leave a couple toddlers in a room with one toy. <laughs> yeah, you, believe me, as a parent, you realize total depravity quite soon. You don't teach your kids to throw things when they're not supposed to. You don't teach your kids to blame somebody else when they did something wrong. You don't teach them to lie. It just happens yeah. innately. It's something that we are born. I mean, Romans 3 talks about this. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. And so I think that's an area where, you know, I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but I think that's an area where doctrines of grace get misunderstood. And R.C. Sproul was famous for talking about this. He'd say, total depravity is often portrayed as people are as bad as they can possibly be. I don't know anyone who believes that. That we call that utter depravity. Right. R.C. Sproul preferred the term, and I like it, radical corruption or, or, you know, implying the study of root corruption. That is that at the very core, we have this sin nature that flows out everything that we're doing and affects everything and taints all of our actions. So even our best morally good or ethically good deeds are tainted by sin nature. Yes. Uh, and so that's what the apostle's talking about here. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, i.e. we were the sons of disobedience. We were in disobedience among whom we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind. We were children of wrath. We were designated for the wrath of God. Sounds like a good movie title. Sons of disobedience. (laughs) I like it. I'll keep it in mind. And then here comes this great hook in verse four. But then you with an island of righteousness reached up to God and said, God, save me. And God pulled you up back into the boat. No, it's not what verse four says. (laughs) Throw me the life jacket. I'm drowning. He's just just drowning. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, just in case we thought we were drowning. Keyword there, dead. (laughs) Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Not dying, not sick, dead in trespasses. So God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. So like, if, you know, you break up the grammatical thing here. God made us alive. But then within that, God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's a lot happening in those 10 verses. Tons. But I think the core thing is the first like three verses show us who we are and who we were. Yes. And then the crux of the change isn't that, well, we still had this little bit of righteousness and God's prevenient grace 
you know, touched us and we responded. It was God and God alone made us alive when we were dead. By grace, you've been saved. He raised us up. And then he reiterates that again, by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And I've seen a lot of different discourse on this. And every time that I've executed this passage and explored it in the recent years, I come to understand that it is the gift of God is referring to that entire salvific process, not just the grace. Right. It's the faith. It's the repentance. It's the works. I mean, it's everything. Right. And then the beauty of that, though, is we're not saved by works. We're saved unto good works. Right. So the works are necessary. Absolutely. But they're not meritorious. Yes. To use some very technical theological yes. language. Yes. Or, you know, another another very important aspect. The Reformation didn't necessarily say saved by faith alone exclusively. The actual doctrinal function is justification by faith alone. Right. Salvation and sanctification is a lifelong process. You yep. know, Scripture says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. But that's not talking about our justification. Right. That's talking about our salvation in time as we're sanctified unto justification. Sounds like we should go to Romans 8 in a moment to talk about that. But while you're turning there, I want to just give one more thought on this. So that idea of being saved by faith or, you know, faith being a gift and people say, and I used to think this, like, what do you mean faith is a gift? It's I'm supposed to respond in faith and this and that. Well, if we're born dead in sin and Romans 3 says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. And you can read the thoughts and the intentions of the heart are evil and wicked. You can keep going back through the Old and New Testament and finding all these passages talking about the, what man, man is not morally neutral, in other words. Amen. And the idea of the faith, all right, well, to my synergistic or friends who believe that justification is a dual, a joint harmony between man and God, equal parts, or even somewhat parts, not quite maybe that extreme. Maybe it's 99% God, but still 1%. Like you still have to reach up and then God will pull you out. I ask, why do we pray for our friends who don't believe to have faith unless it is the gift of God, which I think is what the scripture teaches. But anyway, so that, that's kind of the idea of Ephesians 2 coming off of John 3, this doctrine of regeneration, that we're dead in sin. We have to be made new again. And we're most... You know, I don't think it's a coincidence, by the way, that Romans 3, the page number is 1689. <laughs> Uh, Baptist jokes. So <laughs> Romans 8. Now, why did we go to Romans 8? I mean, Life I know. in the spirit? Well, what happens when we're regenerated? Right. What's the point? What are we regenerated unto? Yeah. Well, we're regenerated unto life in the spirit. Romans 8 specifically says that there's now, once you're saved, once you're regenerated, you become one with Christ. You, mm-hmm. you are imputed with his righteousness. Then, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from our sin, the sin that we were enchained to. We are now been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You know, he was in flesh and he was like us, but he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, which we're now only capable of Mm -hmm. because of the gift Mm -hmm. talked about, that gift of salvation. For those who live according to the flesh and their minds set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit has set their minds on things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. That's important. But to set the mind on spirit is life and peace. Not just Mm -hmm. life, but peace. That peace that scripture talks about being beyond all understanding. When we set our minds on Christ and the things above, we not only have life, but we have peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, Mm. for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, wait for it, it cannot. Think about that. Not only is our fleshly mind and our morally corrupt nature, not only do we not submit 
to God's law, but we can not. Yeah. And uh, we talked about this earlier, what Jonathan Edwards says, it's not that we don't have the faculties, it's that we can't because we won't. Right. Our desire is, we can't is wrong. Because we won't. Yeah. I love that. Well, that's um, like David's prayer in his famous psalm of repentance. Create in me a new heart, a clean heart. We don't even have the desire. God changed the desire of my heart. Amen. It goes on to say, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Mm. However, if you are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, so you actually know Christ, now we're not talking about people in church, we're talking about the people that actually know Christ, mm. the church. If the spirit of Christ dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, and the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through the spirit that dwells in you. Again, that points to the bodily resurrection. Mm -hmm. That points to these tents that we're in that are temporal are going to die, but there is going to be a bodily resurrection, that recreation of our bodies perfected, one with Christ, truly able to actually withstand the glory of Christ. Mm. In the Old Testament, it talks about how couldn't even look upon God because if you did, you would just die mm. because his glory is too much. Yeah. And so we need that recreation to even be in the presence of God when we go and mm. be with him forever. That's all amazing. It gives us so much context. It tells us in the way that Paul is so good at, you know, establishing, as we were talking about establishing this whole flow. He doesn't just jump into this section either. You know, we're eight chapters into the book of Romans yes. at this point. <laughs> yeah. Now remember, these books are written not with chapters mm-hmm. and verse numbers. They were, they were just letters that were written, and it's only been broken up in later years to be easy to read. If only there were uh, Bibles available in English that uh, allowed us to see without verses and chapters. Bibliotheca. So that's something Justin and I are both big fans of. We both have a copy of Bibliotheca. It was a Kickstarter project that is a set of four volumes. You can get a fifth one where you get the intertestamental apocryphal books if you want. But you have four volumes. They're not canon. No. By the way. No. But as far as historic references of what, you know, especially the history pieces like Maccabees are interesting. But again, not inspired, not inerrant. But when you look at uh, the four volumes, it breaks up the biblical library into these four volumes. And then within them, you have the books of the Bible without chapters or verses, single column, no side notes, no footnotes, no margin, you know, no text margins, no commentary. And it just lets you read the text uninhibited. And I personally love uh, my, I also have the ESV Reader's Bible set, which is six volumes, which is amazing. But I was mentioning that because I'm thinking at the end of this chapter, before he gets into the infamous Romans 9, he talks about our strength and our weakness. And in verse 26, he picks up, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And I don't know about you, but man, like that is such a comfort to me that especially when I feel and I know this to be true, that I don't know what to pray, that I have an advocate. Pentecostals love this verse. (laughs) (laughs) And then it gets into, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I don't know about you, but that doesn't leave a lot of room for walking away from the faith. Amen. And I think there's a beauty there of, and we can, you know, we'll get into the idea that topic of apostasy because it is a very serious topic that's addressed in the Bible and how 
Reformed people reconcile that with the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is a huge conversation, especially in recent days with a lot of apostasy of high-profile Christians. But to me, the beauty, this kind of lays out what we were talking about, this idea that the chain of salvation, as people call it, that God predestines his people, he calls them, he justifies them, and in the end, he glorifies them. It's like a long chain of recreation. Mm. I mean, really, when you look at it, God created this world. He created it good and upright. We corrupted it. And ever since then, God has been working on a new creation. Mm. And we are getting to partake in that through the recreation of our hearts and being a part of this grand and glorious story that God is writing through history that for him is already written. Mm. And for us, we're just basically getting to view it and be a part of it. Characters in this wonderful historical theater that he's created. And it's incredibly comforting to know that that recreation is permanent. <laughs> mm, yeah. When we were using all those terms as well, I think this is a good way to see that. These are biblical terms, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Elsewhere, we speak of sanctification being the lifelong process from rebirth, regeneration, until we die, where we're being conformed to the likeness of Christ. And that falls between, you know, these different phrases. But I think the beauty here is that we see a God who's choosing to save unworthy people and who is working this out for that, you know, who's, who's transforming them, who's giving them new life, who is then sanctifying and changing them. And because of faith in Christ, they're justified. A faith that's a gift of God, but because they put their faith, and it's not just an intellectual assent, it's not just a an agreement with a proposition, it's putting personal trust in Jesus. One of the best ways my dad used to put it was, it's not just head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. Mm. The demons have the head knowledge and they tremble. Amen. You need to have the heart knowledge. Yeah. And so on that, I want to actually kind of close out reading the end of this chapter because I think it's absolutely beautiful. And it's a nice exhortation to all of us. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And before I get to the very last section there, what an incredible, powerful word of encouragement Paul gives here to the believers in Rome that who's going to condemn us? Yeah. The God before whom we are guilty of sin yeah. has justified us. The, the Savior who died for us, who raised for us, is interceding for us. He didn't even spare his own son. If he's not even going to spare his own son, what in the world is he not going to give to his people? Hmm. Ultimately, I mean, there's nothing that he's going to keep from us. And then he closes out with this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Powerful. I got Absolutely nothing after powerful. that. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you. And we spoke about this in a previous episode, this idea of suffering for Christ. Mm. Think about the context in which Paul is writing this. And he's saying that we are literally being killed all the day long, being counted as sheep to the slaughter. Yet in all of that, in the midst of all of that, there is no separation from God's love mm. for us. I mean, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, 
Do you even have a soul? <laughs> you might still be dead. Never mind. Oh, theology jokes. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for listening to another episode of Distilling Theology. We hope you enjoyed. As always, let us know what you're drinking, what you think we should try next. What you're reading. Absolutely. And what we should talk about. Thank you guys again. God bless you. To learn more, visit distillingtheology.com and check us out on Instagram at Distilling Theology and Facebook, Distilling Theology.